An exhalation strategy can interfere with range of motion or enhance performance. So how are we cueing this? Good morning. Happy Monday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, very solid weekend. Rolling into a new week. Looking forward to a big one. Hope you are too. Um, I was going back and forth on the uh, Q&A email, askbillharman at gmail.com with uh, Bryce. And, and Bryce had a, actually a really good question in regards to exhalation strategies and such. And when would we actually cue something that would be a much more of an aggressive exhalation strategy? So, so much like a Vesalva maneuver. And so it allows us to talk about several different things. We can talk about exhalation interfering. We can talk about exhalation as a performance enhancer. And we get to talk about sticking point stuff. So, so let's kind of break this down in, into those segments. Um, when I started talking about archetypes and started influencing the, the different breathing strategies in regards to, um, well, a wide ISA is going to use a more forceful exhalation to, to close the ISA. The, the narrow is going to use a, a sort of lighter exhalation strategy because we don't want to over-recruit the, the external musculature. It started to seem like everybody that jumped on the bandwagon thought that there was only one way to do this kind of a thing. And so then that starts to create some, some interference because you're going to have situations that come up where people come in with these superficial compressive strategies. These are exhalation-based strategies to begin with. And if you use the, the inappropriate exhalation strategy, even if it falls into that, that archetypal, archetypical recommendation, you can still create some interference. So for instance, if I have a wide ISA that has a really strong superficial compressive strategy and I drive the hard exhale to try to close the ISA, you just reinforced everything that's that's interfering. And so so we want to start to, to look at these things as, as the needs of the individual. So it's always N equals one, as I'm fond of talking about. And so, for instance, in this wide ISA with a strong com compressive strategy, you may have to just use simple, quiet nasal breathing, and you tend to get a really, really good response because what we're trying to do is we're trying to take the strategies into consideration and then superimpose what is the, the best case scenario in regards to, to the breathing. When we look at the extreme other end, so when we, when we get into this performance relationship, um, we have to use these really, really strong exhalation strategies because we need high forces and then we need the benefit of the, that force to actually demonstrate velocity. And so, so we're going to move people towards these Vesalva maneuvers. And, and so there's an element of timing and, and duration that will either in, enhance our ability to, to access these high forces or are we going to create interference for, for speed. So if, you, if you've been living under a rock, a Vesalva maneuver is an exhalation against a closed glottis. So if you've ever lifted anything heavy and you made a little grunting noise that, that prior to the, to the grunt, which is the release of, of air, you, you did a Vesalva maneuver um, under those circumstances. If you look at the research and, and they talk about percentages of 1RMs, um, if, you're, if you're a practiced lifter of any kind, you can actually inhibit the, the Vesalva maneuver up to about, give or take, um, 80% of your of your 1RM. At, at about 80%, it's going to become automatic and you're going to need it because at some point in time, you're going to have to reduce the relative motions to produce enough force to complete a lift under those circumstances. The thing that we want to recognize is it's not always going to be under these, these maximal effort conditions for most people. There's going to be a threshold that's idiosyncratic to that individual where they're going to need a, a higher force output and therefore they will automatically hold their breath. Um, 
me give you a, a strange for instance. So my dad would have this noise, this, this mighty yelp that he would give as he was getting out of his recliner. And it, number one, it was to announce the fact that he was actually getting up to leave the room. But number two, it was because the effort that was required for him to get out of the chair um, required that much of an exhalation strategy to produce the forces to get up out of the chair. So when we talk about the sticking point, we're talking about this high pressure situation that, that we, we need to produce. So when we're gonna see these Vesalvas show up um, is gonna be, there's gonna be a joint position where they're gonna, they're gonna typically show up. So it's gonna typically gonna be in these, these internally rotated biased positions. So if you think about, um, as we talked about the sticking point at about 90 degrees of hip and knee flexion, plus or minus 30, um, it's gonna show up in, in these ranges. So anytime you have to produce a high force under, the, under these circumstances, again, an IR bias, we're gonna see this, this high um, internal pressure, um, number one, be required, um, but it's probably not going to be easy to inhibit it under those, those circumstances. Now, if we take this in, into the, the training hall, Number one, we, we might have to coach it to a certain degree. So, so under certain circumstances when we want to reduce relative motions or we're trying to train an element uh, of performance. So, so for instance, if we take a narrow ISA who's biased towards an eccentrically oriented pelvic outlet, they might have too much yielding action and we want to teach them concentric orientation and we want to teach them overcoming. So we're going to have to train them to produce this, this forceful exhalation under these circumstances to actually acquire the internal pressures required to produce these high forces and, and high speeds. And so again, so if we're looking at a box squat, for, for instance, and we want to teach the impulse off the box squat, we're going to have to teach this brief forceful exhalation strategy because they may not, may not understand it, they may not have it under those, those circumstances. Um, we might also use it if we're, again, under the same circumstances where we're trying to impose some velocity on top of this to acquire this concentric overcoming. So if we did like a squat clean or something like that, again, we're gonna cue these, these high force, brief exhalation strategies to help us produce force, but also to get the tissue behavior um, that, that we're trying to acquire. If we're trying to transition somebody from the slower speed strength training to demonstrating high velocity, we want to start to concern ourselves with, with the timing of, of the exhalation strategy. So in these circumstances, we're looking for a situation where we're actually producing the highest amount of tension and we're creating the release strategy, which is where we're going to demonstrate our velocity and then recapturing our, our tension again. So if we're doing some form of oscillatory impulse activity like a, like a split squat, or, or some form of, of rotational activity, now we're talking about, about strategy because if we sustain the exhale through these activities, what we're gonna see is we're actually gonna see a reduction in the amount of velocity that we're going to be able to demonstrate because an exhalation strategy is internal rotation, it is force production, and it's a reduction of relative motion. Well, we need this relative motion available to us to demonstrate the, the velocity. One other thing as a side note is you're probably gonna to wanna to reduce the total volume of slower speed strength training under these circumstances because then what you're gonna have is you're gonna have this interference where in one aspect of training, you're producing high forces and you're sustaining this exhalation strategy for an extended period of time. And then the other, we're trying to shorten that duration. And so we, we've got a little bit of a conflict. So, so just a, a word to the wise in regards to your programming. 
um, that you can actually create interference um, if you don't pay attention to your to your loads and volumes. And of course, you're going to use some form of key performance indicator, whether that be some form of jump, jump sprint, or other um, high velocity activity. It could be just just throwing if you're if you're a baseball pitcher. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a of a background, a little bit of a framework to work with when we're talking about these exhalation strategies. Again, they can be interference, and we'll see this quite often in in the rehab situation. So we got to be very particular about our our exhalation strategies. But when it comes to performance, there's there's a timing and, and a duration that's going to be a very, very important influence in, in acquiring the desired outcomes. So if you have any other questions, please go to askbillharmon at gmail.com, askbillharmon at gmail.com, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Let's break down some general concepts of pull-ups and chin-ups. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay, already a solid Tuesday. Let's dig into today's Q&A. I got a, a series of questions about chin-ups and pull-ups. Some are associated with what are the compensations that you're, you're typically going to see. Some of it is associated with, with a, one, one gentleman was asking about elbow pain, and we'll kind of get to those. Today I want to sort of establish just a general framework of what we would expect to see and maybe some, some generalized uh, compensatory strategies. First and foremost, we got to talk about range of motion and force production. So remember, we always talk about the concept of having this expanded external rotation field. So we need an ER field so we can access range of motion around us and we superimpose internal rotation on top of that. So our internal rotation is a compressive strategy, it is force production, and it is usually resistance of gravity. And so um, if we limit that ER field. If we reduce the ER field through through compensatory strategies or, or compression, we've immediately limited our potential to, to produce internal rotation and force production and therefore um, also ranges of motion. So we want to keep that in mind as we go through talking about, about the chin-ups and pull-ups. So let's break the chin-up and pull-up into basically three segments. So we're going to talk about the initial position, we'll talk about mid-range, and then we'll talk about, about the finish. And so when we look at chin-ups and pull-ups, regardless of, of which one we're talking about, in this end range position of the hang, um, the shoulder is going to be biased towards internal rotation um, under almost every circumstance. We've got the medial border of the scapula that is compressed against the thorax. Um, we have an orientation of the glenoid into ER. The humerus is going to be, therefore, in relative internal rotation. So under these circumstances, we need posterior lower expansion of the thorax and we need an up pump handle um, because a deficit in either of these areas is going to lead towards a compensatory strategy. So for some of you, that compensatory strategy might be spreading your hands apart. So you're going to take a wider grip on the bar and, hey, my shoulder's more comfortable because now what you've done is you've created an orientation into external rotation. You've now sort of expanded your, your ER field, if you will, and that allows you to produce internal rotation in that position um, with less com uh, compressive strategy. Now, as we move through this chin-up, we are, we are essentially under load. So we are going to have an internal rotation bias throughout this entire thing. So this is just like a press, this is just like a bench press, this is just like a squat. We, we have a compressive strategy from start to finish, but we still need external rotation uh, to allow us to access ranges of motion and therefore we, that's what we superimpose our internal rotation uh, upon. So when we're doing our pull, um, this is going to re require that we maintain some measure of 
posterior expansion if you lack the ability to expand the dorsal rostral area and therefore access some measure of of er that means we've shrunk the er field and now we're going to need to figure out a way to superimpose this IR. So what we end up doing is we'll typically throw a compensatory strategy on top of that. So what you'll see is scapular retraction, which turns the glenoid outward into ER, or you're going to see traditional spinal extension under these circumstances, because that is the substitution for internal rotation at the shoulder when I don't have access to it at the shoulder. Now, let's not forget about our dynamic ISA. So to get the arms into the overhead position to even start the, the pull up or chin up effectively, we have to be able to reclose the infrasternal angle because what we have to do is we have to create compression in the lower part of the thorax to promote the expansion upward. So we're squeezing the bottom to push the volume of, of air into the upper part of, of the thorax. And this is what allows us to get the pump handle and the dorsal rostral expansion. So we have our ER available to us and then we can produce our IR on top of it. As we move through the middle range of the chin-up, the demand of intraorientation is actually going to, to increase under these circumstances. But I still need to have dorsal rostral expansion, again, so I have some measure of external rotation that I can superpose my IR on. Now, if I don't have that, what you're going to see is you're going to see that thorax compress even more. So you're going to see the, the, the space between the scapula get pushed forward. So you'll see this early scapular retraction. Again, this is turning the scapula into ER. So you'll see the arms moving outward away from midline to try to capture this externally rotated position. So again, I can superimpose my IR on. So a nice little comparison to this would be for those of you that have to squat with a really wide stance and the toe out. The reason that you do that is because you have to turn your hip sockets outward so you can have enough external rotation so you can produce force into the ground as you're squatting. Now let's go to the finish. So for me to finish a chin up, I'm gonna need posterior lower expansion, which means that you better be able to control your infrasternal angle via abdominal activity, because what I have to do is I have to use my abdomen, my, my abdominal muscles, to push volume posteriorly into the, the, the posterior thorax to keep that expanded so I can access the end range position. If you don't expand that, there is no extra rotation range of motion available to you. Therefore, you cannot finish the, the exercise. So this is for those fine folks that are struggling to get their chest to the bar if they want to, or their chin over the bar if they want to, because what you can't do is you're, you're not expanding that. So again, you're arching your back to produce your internal rotation. You compress to such a degree that you no longer have any range of motion available to you. So the compressive strategy is so great. You don't have ER, you don't have IR, motion stops. And the, and the chin up is done. Um, you'll see this in a lot of very, like the massive bodybuilders that go through this almost like just simple middle range excursions because they just don't have any range of motion available to them. So quick review, common compensations for the lack of shoulder range of motion. You're gonna try to find a way to orient into ER. So you're gonna try to turn the scapula. So that's why you see the, the upper, um, or the dorsal rostral compressive strategies to turn that glenoid outward. You're gonna see traditional spinal extension as a substitution for the internal rotation. But keep in mind, the first thing you have to be able to do to effectively execute these, these pull-ups and chin-ups, I have to have enough expansion for my external rotation field that I can superimpose internal rotation on top of it. If you have any questions uh, pertaining to the chin-up or anything else for that matter, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and we'll see you guys tomorrow.
It's chin-ups day two, and this time we're gonna talk about medial elbow pain with chin-ups. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand, and it is perfect. All right, today is Wednesday. That means that tomorrow is Thursday, so please join us 6 a.m. for the coffee and coaches conference call. These calls have been great. They're, they're tremendous fun for me. Time just flies by. We've been going like an hour and a half, two hours on these calls, and just having a blast. So grab a cup of coffee, and please join us for that. Again, 6 a.m. Link will be on my professional Facebook page um, just prior to the call, about 5.30 or so. Um, so it's Wednesday, always always tight. We gotta dig right in to today's Q&A. This is apparently chin-up pull-up, day two of, of chin-up and pull-up week. Got a question from Theo, and Theo says, hey, I'm experiencing this, this increasing pain in the inside of my elbow. I notice it on just about any kind of gripping activity, but it comes much more severe, especially when attempting any kind of chin-up or pull-up. Any ideas why this might be happening? Yes. So, so Theo, I'm gonna give you the most common representation that I see um, with this circumstance, but first and foremost, what I wanna do is I wanna cue you to watch yesterday's video. So that's kind of the setup for today's video um, because it gave us a little bit of a background on, on what our needs are and some of the compensatory representations that we're gonna see in, in chin-ups and pull-ups as to how people actually execute these things. Um, the, the, the key element that I want you to walk away with from yesterday's video is that we gotta have external rotation range of motion to superimpose the force of internal rotation on top. So there's gonna be common compensations that are associated with the lack of shoulder range of motion that's gonna produce orientations into external rotation so we can actually still produce the, the internal rotation force. Now, here's the problem with chin-ups and pull-ups because we've got both hands fixed on the same bar. We create a constraint and that constraint reduces our ability to turn. So we have, we have cancellation of turns which result in compressive forces and compressive strategies. We see the same thing with, with barbell activities. So again, no big deal. We just need to recognize these things. But what it does then is we create situations that are, are proximal to distal and then distal to proximal. And unfortunately, your elbow is dead center. And so we're gonna have, we're gonna have this, this sort of wave effect that's gonna come down from the top and up from the bottom. So as force demands increase, what you're gonna see is you're gonna start to see these orientations, orientations into external rotation, which we need to create space. So we have to have a space where we can move and this allows us to produce internal rotation. What's gonna happen though is we orient, we're gonna drive this from the, the scapula in, in most circumstances, the humerus is gonna follow the scapula into external rotation. And then we have to produce this internal rotation situation. So, so let's pick on a muscle when we're talking proximal to distal. People don't think about pronator teres as being a proximal mus muscle, but it does attach to the medial epicondyle. So what this muscle is actually doing as you're performing your chin-up is it's producing internal rotation because it's, it's a forearm pronator. That's why they named it pronator teres, but they screwed up because it's actually attached to the, to the humerus. And what it actually does to the humerus is it twists the humerus into ER. So it's actually an ER muscle as well. And it's an elbow flexor by traditional representation. Um, so it's doing a lot of stuff, but what it's gonna do is it's actually gonna pull in that medial condyle as you're trying to drive internal rotation on top of this ER-oriented position. Now, let's go distal to proximal. We fix the hand, so what the hand's gonna try to do, it's sort of like a foot being on the ground. The hand is fixed, and so what we're gonna do is we're gonna start to drive internal rotation with the hand proximally. 
And so because uh, of our fixed hand, even if we're supinated, even if we're supinated, we're gonna try to drive an internal rotation force. So we're gonna try to drive pronation from the hand proximally. Now, here's the other problem. If I get a compression on the front because I'm canceling out rotational forces, so if I push my pump handle down under these circumstances to create internal pressure and, and high force, I'm gonna create a situation where I lose shoulder internal rotation. So again, down pump handle, loss of shoulder internal rotation, now I'm in compensation city. So what you're going to see then is we're going to see internal rotation compensations. So this is going to show up as back extension, traditional back extension, um, posterior lower thorax compression, you're going to see uh, increased pronation of the forearm, pronation of the hand, and then you're going to see like a shrugging action, which is actually dorsal rostral compression. And so again, you're going to see all of these substitutions start to take place, and then your poor little elbow in the middle is going to be where, where we have this point of compensation. Well, but what if we change the hand position? Because again, if that's the constraint, let's just manipulate that. Okay, so you, you, you may have noticed that, hey, when I play with my grip a little bit, if, if I go from like a supinated or pronated grip and I go to this, this middle range, kind of a neutral grip, that, that there's a little bit of a difference. Well, any degree of supination is gonna to start to drive some external rotation orientation from distal to proximal. So from hand proximally, um, which again, that's why these parallel grips kind of help. But um, the thing that I want you to recognize is that as soon as you start to load this to any significant degree, you're still gonna drive a ton of internal rotation force. Um, one of the other advantages that's possible, which is why we, we tend to, to push people towards neutral grips so they can keep training while they're trying to rehab this situation. Um, there's a cool thing about brachioradialis in this, in this neutral grip position that, that I wanna uh, point out. Everybody looks at brachioradialis and say, oh, that's an elbow flexor. And that's a really good dead guy representation um, as to what it might do. But what it actually does is it creates a posterior force um, through, the, through the elbow. And that actually decreases the, the posterior compressive strategy that actually occurs under this same situation. So we get this posterior lateral compression that drives some of this, this orientation at the elbow as well. And so the, the neutral grip can actually resolve some of that just by this cool uh, effect from brachioradialis. So let's talk solutions here real quick. So number one, we gotta rebuild posterior expansion. We've gotta have a, tr a, a true ER field that we can superimpose internal rotation upon. So the activities that we're gonna start to select here are going to be posterior expansion. Um, we're, gonna, we're gonna play with arm position a little bit, so we wanna do activities that are below shoulder level. That's gonna help us start to build this, this posterior lower thorax expansion. And then we wanna be able to move through the excursion of traditional shoulder elevation um, where we're gonna start to, to move upward and, and improve our dorsal rostral expansion so we can eventually get the arm above shoulder level. Um, do, do this progressively. Don't try to do it all at once because chances are you're not gonna have enough expansion initially. Um, you might wanna also try to superimpose a little bit of, of supination into the inverted activities that you might be using that are eventually gonna get you um, a little bit of pump handle and dorsal rostral expansion at the same time. If uh, you know somebody that, that has um, manual skills and is allowed to touch people, you can manually reorient the forearm. So, so we, we block the, the proximal elbow, a little bit of distraction there to reduce the, the posterior compression and then we can actually uh, mobilize that, that distal forearm to actually reduce the amount of pronation in the distal forearm relative to the proximal forearm. So that's a fun one, and it does, it's, it's rather remarkable in regards to, to how quickly you can, you can see changes there. 
Um, then we got to restore anterior expansion. So we got to get true internal rotation available to us. Um, because of the, the elbow being a little uncomfortable under many situations, we start in, a, in a, like a high oblique sit. This is a great place to start. We can keep the elbow extended. Um, I do have a video on, on YouTube um, showing a, a high oblique activity where we start to, to play with in, inhalation and exhalation. So we're, so we're actually creating um, expansion posteriorly, expansion anteriorly, and we're manipulating the pressure through the hand. So we're getting pronation, supination, ER, IR through the shoulder at the same time. So check out that video. We want to move down then to the low oblique position where we can actually get the, the elbow flexed. In this position, because we're not pulling, we're reducing the demands on, on pronator teres. So now it can just be its, its true little dead guy self where it's becoming the pronator of the, of the forearm, which is what we want to restore normal proximal pronation at the elbow and start to reduce some of this, this orientation. Um, eventually what you can do then is start to build the, these orientations into some direct arm work if that's what you like to do. Um, and then I would also suggest that we move from activities where both hands are on a fixed bar to activities where we have a free moving hand and we're doing one side at a time in regards to your pulling activities because what this is gonna allow, is gonna allow the normal rotations to occur so we're not getting um, symmetrical um, force production at the same time, which creates this anterior-posterior compression, which got you here in the first place. So Theo, I hope that helps you a little bit and directs you in regards to your training. If you have any other questions, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., coffee and coaches conference call. Have a great day. Happy Thursday. I have neuro coffee in hand, and it is... Perfect. I guess, how does that inform, you know, other things like, for example, maybe, or does it, does it determine things like how, how much you flare your arms during a bench press or how you point your feet during a squat? Is that how it works? Well, now that you brought it up. Okay. So when you, when we look at the, the, um, archetypes and you, and you look at the, the horizontal, element of of the helical angle of say a, a wide isa individual they're not going to be as great at reaching overhead as someone that has a more vertical helical angle and so yeah you kind of do play with that a little bit as far as what those those uh, uh extremity orientation is going to be like what is going to be an optimal direction of force production um you know it's going to it's going to predispose somebody to be better at certain things. And so, yeah, you might play with those angles a little bit and then find your optimal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, like I said, it's not an absolute by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a guide, right? It allows you to, to have a starting point. Many of the things that we talk about are just starting points, right? So when I talk about archetypes, it's like, how do you, how do you start somebody? How do you know where to begin? It's a guide. It directs you towards, okay, you, you're probably going to be better at this than you are at something else. Let's start with where you're most successful. Well, I've got, I've, I've been like thinking about pal-off presses and in one of your recent videos, you put up a demonstration of one. I did. And <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, context. hang on, it's coming. So I could see the the line of force, like say say you're holding your hands out in front and the pole is going to the right. 
I can see that almost mimicking gravity and kind of forcing you to go left and push you out of the right side. The same way you would use a ground to help push you up to and like expand the top. Um, when, when using a paloff press, and let's just say it is pulling you to the right, do you normally use it to pull further to the right or pull you out of the right to the left? What's the intent? You can shape it to whatever you want, right? Absolutely. So, so this is, so, so think about um, like an offset load on a split squat. Yeah. All by by if I put the load on the right side or I put the load on the left side, depending on which leg is forward, I've changed the exercise, haven't I? I've made it easier to do one thing and harder to do the other. And so again, it's, you just have to decide what the intent is. Am I trying to to capture a position or or promote range of motion? I have to do one thing because if I if I do the the opposing strategy, I've made it harder. And and there's times to do that. It's like so once I can capture a position, now I may want to challenge you and say, make yourself get there. Now that you have the potential to do it. Right now, I want to apply a resistance to make it just a little bit more challenging. Right, because so let's just say, all right, right leg forward split squat, right side uh, uh, load. Easier, easier to drive external rotation coming up out of the split squat in that situation harder to drive internal rotation under those circumstances. So am I trying to capture the internal rotation at the bottom or, or am I trying to make it easier to come out of the bottom? You see, right. so it's like, it's like so, so, you know, that's, that's why, you, you know, I'm, I'm such a stickler about not wanting people to think that there is only a way, right? People think that there is a good posture. It doesn't exist. Hey, Bill. There you are. Okay. Good morning. Uh, I had a question about, uh, I noticed in a lot of the exercises, you prioritize the foot position first before do, doing like the pelvis, the knees and all that stuff. Yes, so sir. during moving, so let's just say during gait, does the, uh, uh, like, like the early propulsion, mid propulsion, leg propulsion, does it begin at the foot and go up the extremity? Is that why you're prioritizing the foot position first? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, okay. Do you need it's more funny. than that? <laughs> yeah, so, so think about it. It's like, so, so what, what sensory input do you have? If I'm standing up, right, other than, you know, my spatial senses that I use, vision, audition, et cetera, right? What, what is the, the most impactful sensation that you have? I only have contact with the ground. And so if you look at, I tell you what, if you look at shoe research, um, this is, this is where, where it really starts to show up. So, so they'll take um, like three different kinds of shoes, right? That are supposed to do different things to feet. And I think it's DeSherry. I think is the, is the the researcher's name D I uh, it's uh, S C H A R R Y or something like that, um, Desherry. And what they did is they actually stuck markers in the bones of the feet, which must have been just the most pleasant of experiences. And um, and then they put them in different shoes, and then they monitored the 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 bones of the feet. And what they found was is that the feet don't really change 
much at all, regardless of what type of shoe you put someone in. However, what did change is the upstream muscle activity. And so, so it's kind of a big deal. So again, when, when you don't have uh, a contact that's coming up from the ground, then the message doesn't get propagated up as to what you may want to be capturing in the hip or the pelvic orientation or the, the rest of the axial skeleton. So I'm very particular about, about how I orient the feet depending on where I want them in, in this propulsive cycle. Okay, and that's why using arm positions to get ribcage changes works as well because yeah. you have another reference. Absolutely. Well, so hands, hands are the same thing. Anytime you put somebody's hands in contact with the surface, you get feedback proximal, right? So that's a big deal too. That's a, that's a, and that's a common, common error is not attending to, to where your hand contact is. So again, you, you, you have to, anytime, and this goes for any exercise, you, you have to decide like, what is my intent here? And, and then how are we going to execute this? And then what am I willing to allow to happen, right? If, if your goal is excursion, then you have to minimize the compensatory strategy. Mm -hmm. If your goal is force, you might have to maximize those, but also monitor you know, all other key performance indicators to make sure that you're not creating an interference. Um. Being that you could like uh, manipulate the um, pull up, like I could have one hand supinated, one hand pronated if I want to, does it make sense to bend the bar? You know, when they say bend the bar or just put your hands up and it'll do the job or it depends type um, question. Well, what is bending the bar for? Uh, you're trying to create the, the, the ER or the IR as much as you can. Right, so, so I'm, and again, with a chin up, it's really hard to do that. Right. It, it, the bending of the bar thing tends to be more associated with pressing activities, right? Uh -huh. Because when you think about uh, the, the difference between the press, it's like I have to, I have to lower the, the weight into a position and to get to that position, I need extra rotation, right? And so, so the, the, the force of, of ER is what you're doing, right? You're, you're trying to drive extra rotation because that's where my that's where my space is going to be created to allow me to move into that position because the, the compressive load of the weight might be so much that I cannot externally rotate at all, right? And so I have to, I have to provide an influence that buys me whatever few degrees of, of range of motion I need to complete the lift. Here's a solution for the pain that you get in the back knee when you're doing split squats. Good morning, happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. That is really good. All right, time's a wasted. We gotta dig right into today's Q&A um, to wrap up the week. Um, this comes from Tony and Tony says, hi Bill, hi Tony. Says, I have a female client that complains of knee pressure and sometimes pain in the left knee. It only occurs when she's doing some form of half kneeling with the left knee down or when the left leg is the back leg on back lunges or split squats. She says that her quads feel tight in the same position. She can squat without feeling anything in the left knee. Can you help a brother out? Uh, Tony, I am here to help the brother out. All right, thanks for all you do. 
All right, Tony, we've got a very specific situation. We've got a very specific position. And so this kind of narrows down what the possibilities are. The most common situation that we have here is we have somebody that is using a late propulsive strategy um, on the left side in a situation where we want to be in the middle. So we want, a, we want an IR representation on the left side of the pelvis and in the left hip in the bottom of that split squat. And if we can't achieve that, then what we have is a situation where we're in an ER position and trying to produce force. And we know the ER is there for us to access motion. So we usually get a split squat that looks like that, something like that anyway, where you'll see sort of like the back leg sort of moving away from midline and you'll see it turning out. And that is, again, that's an externally rotated position. And so let's look at this through the pelvis real quick. So if we look at it from the back side, what we, what we end up seeing in most cases is we get this posterior lower compressive strategy, which is going to move this left ilium forward. So we have a sacrum that is, that is facing the right. When we drop the left leg back in, in the split squat, what we end up with is an orientation of the whole pelvis turning. So the relative position of the sacrum to the ilium is that the sacrum still trying to go back to the right and, and we've got this ilium that's actually pushing it there. And so we just get a turn like so, and then the back leg ends up in this position away from midline, which is actually still external rotation. And so what we want then is a solution that's gonna recapture the ability of that sacrum to, to turn left. Because if we don't do that, what we end up with is we have, again, the left side of the pelvis is forward. So the ilium is forward, rectus femoris picks up concentric orientation that can increase pressure on the anterior knee. And then we got vastus lateralis, which tries to become this internal rotation muscle because we don't have any internal rotation orientation in, in the pelvis. So then what we have is just a massive amount of concentric orientation in the front of that thigh. So that's why she's feeling that, that tightness that she complains about. But we also get that compressive strategy on the, on the anterior knee. So what we want to do is we want to try to capture a pelvis position that looks fairly level in the lower part of the split squat. So if we look at a comparison, you can see that, that when we have the orientation of, of the pelvis to the left, you can still see that external rotation. All right, so here's the solution. Number one, we want to eliminate interference. So when people complain about this quad type feeling, um, there's this tendency to want to go chasing some form of stretching for, the, for the, the hip flexors or the anterior hip or the quad. And it ends up looking something like that. And that is actually just a reinforcement of this late propulsive strategy. And so again, we tend to not want to go there. We also get this situation where people will say, oh, you have weak glutes, which is, again, not really the, the situation that we're dealing with. And then we end up doing glute bridges and they end up looking like that. And so, again, all we're doing with these activities is reinforcing this late propulsive strategy. So if she's in late, then what we want to do as our, as our first layer of strategy is we want to move her all the way to early. So both of these situations are concept orientation. One is a yielding strategy and one is the overcoming. So she's in the overcoming. We want to create the yielding strategy, which is actually going to start to turn our sacrum to the left. So we're going to, we're going to initiate this in an early propulsive activity. And so we could just use simply in the gym, we go to a supine arm bar and we're going to start to recapture that ability to turn the sacrum. 
this can then move into a left rolling pattern. So we're gonna start with an, with an early propulsive strategy in the roll, and then we wanna to move towards middle um, in, in this, this uh, rolling activity. This can eventually become then the right arm bar that will approximate this, this same position. So again, we don't have to lay anybody on the table, we don't have to do any measurements, we don't have to treat this person like a rehab client. We have one scenario to deal with here, and that's all we're, all we're gonna chase. Now, because of the orientation of the pelvis, she's gonna have probably a situation where she's gonna have an eccentrically oriented pelvic outlet, and we wanna make sure that she can capture concentric orientation. Now, the cool thing you mentioned in your, in your question is that she can squat without pain. Awesome, so we can already start to work on that. So what we wanna do is we wanna to start to work on maybe a touch and go box squat, so we can capture the concentric orientation of that pelvic outlet, and start to work on the shape change of the pelvis so we can capture this internal rotation. From there, we can use an overcoming, um, uh, squat in a static position um, that will also teach her the concentric overcoming strategy in the pelvic outlet. So that gets us our pressure management that we're going to need in the bottom of the split squat to hang on to this internally rotated position. Now we can start to move into split stance activities. So the first thing I like to do is just to do some sort of static representation of this. And what we want to do is we want to create a situation where we're actually pulling ourselves towards this, this overcoming action through the thorax. So we can actually use the thorax to help us start to build the, from, from the top down. So if we pull the thorax into the, the overcoming and we resist that, we're actually gonna start to teach ourselves to, to keep the pelvis turned to the left um, in a stressful situation, so in a loaded situation. Um, so again, that's why we're gonna, we're gonna use this cable representation now. From here, we're gonna move this into a dynamic situation where we're gonna move back into the split squat, but we're gonna use an offset load. So we load the right side, which is gonna make it easier for us to maintain the external rotation on the right side, which is gonna keep the pelvis turned to the left as we descend into the split squat. Another strategy that I really like that, that becomes a very strong challenge for this um, is to use the 3D strap from the What's That Strap guys, and, and it'll shove you hard into this late propulsive strategy. And so now we're creating a tremendous amount of resistance, and now we have a very strong effort to keep this pelvis turned to the left as we descend into the split squat. So again, we're just raising the level of challenge here to, to help us um, resist the overcoming strategy, so that late propulsive strategy on the left side. So um, as a wrap up, so there's a lot of possibilities here. There's a lot of ways to address this. Um, this is just um, one of, of many. But the first thing I would say is you're in a late propulsive strategy on the left side. You want to go early to start to address this um, to achieve um, this pain-free situation. Next, make sure you can capture exhalation, internal rotation, and pressure management strategies internally because you're going to need that concentric orientation of the pelvic diaphragm, you're gonna need the internally rotated position of the pelvis at the bottom of the split squat to make sure that, that we have um, eliminated this, this concentric orientation on the anterior aspect of, of the hip and, and, the, and the thigh, and then challenge them to hold this position to resist this late propulsive strategy in the split squat. Tony, I hope that helps you. Um, if you have any further questions, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys next week.